everyone. It's the TetraCast. It's a thousand degrees outside and I'm here inside with the AC on and a cold Coke Zero. Don't judge me. Um, I'm your host, Brian Vitelli. Joining me today are Adam Vitelli. Hey guys. And James Galizio. The sun is a deadly laser. <laughs> so uh, it is the middle of July. It is, uh, George isn't going to be here today, so it'll just be us three carrying the uh, torch. And we're here to talk about RPGs. But looking at the games we've been playing today, we've actually got a few non-RPGs on the list to talk about. So we'll be branching out as we tend to do. Uh, so I guess I'll just start with James, because you have a title on this from 2017 that I'm interested to hear your opinion of, because I didn't realize you were playing it. So what did you think of Prey from Arcane Studios? Um, so I've been kind of playing it on and off for, well, a year and a half now, two years, something like that. I think I remember getting it on a Steam sale a while back because I've heard so many good things about it and it dropped below 10 bucks. And um, kind of to give it some background, it feels like when Prey was first shown off by Bethesda and the way they marketed it was kind of at odds with the type of game that it actually is. Um, the best way to describe Prey 2017, because, well, first off, it, the title is confusing because Prey. 2017 isn't called Prey 2017, but it's basically a reboot of a series that only had one game that Bethesda yeah. also published. It, it's kind of crazy. Um, yeah, Prey is an immersive sim, which if you don't know what that genre of game is, if you've heard of uh, System Shock, if you've heard of, um, to a lesser extent, I guess, Bioshock, but basically System Shock 1 and 2 are immersive sims. They're almost like Metroidvanias in the sense that you have a game world where you can sequence break depending on um, dif um, different skills that you get, different things that you do in the world. And it's fairly freeform with how you can progress through the uh, story. You have a lot of agency in how you decide to per uh, proceed through the game. Uh, Prey. Um, one thing I've noticed a bunch of people have uh, likened it to, especially, um, especially a bunch of people that actually trust their opinions on this, is that um, when it came out, I saw a ton of people make the comparison that Prey 2017 is essentially a spiritual system shock three, which for people that know the system shock franchise and how classic system shock two is supposed to be, that's really high praise. And, and after... Dishonored has a lot of similar DNA from the same developer. Not quite, but it it does kind of shine through the um, immersive sim elements in that game as well. Yeah. So don't want to talk too much about the story because there is like spoilers. And I really enjoyed the ending, that's all I'll say. Um, but Prey is a game. I, I'm kind of mad that it took me so long to get, um, get through it. But I guess also part of the problem with immersive sims is that since they're aren't really that many out there anymore. <laughs> it uh, takes a while to get used to uh, playing them, if you haven't before, if you haven't in a long while. Well, sometimes you see that first-person pr perspective with a, you know, with a firearm, and you're like, oh, this is a first-person shooter. It's like, no. But, like, and, yeah, and Bethesda's marketing certainly didn't help. The way they marketed it made it seem like a more traditional shooter when it, this is definitely an immersive sim. Like, uh, one of the things that really makes it clear at the beginning is that one of the first key codes you get that you can enter into a computer 
or well, key, one of the first key codes you get is 0451, which if, if you've played any of the System Shock games, that number should be familiar um, to you. Because, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, I haven't played it, but I've heard that that's a kind of a clear Easter egg. Yeah. Well, I, I just kind of want to say that I, I know what you mean about Bethesda's marketing. They always seem to like go to the same well for a lot of their properties. I feel like they marketed the Wolfenstein games, the Rage series, like or I guess the the, re, the whatever they call the second one. Is it just Rage Two? The one that came out like last year to like no fanfare. Yeah, Rage Two. And, and then like they always kind of go with this like kitschy angle for a lot of their titles, and I feel like they need to differentiate them more. Well, I, I, I feel they need. Like, I, feel like, I know yeah. like anything about marketing, yeah. but. I feel like the marketing they're doing for Deathloop is really nice. Like the trailer they had, the PS5, uh, um, PS5 uh, game reveal thing was really good, at least in my opinion. But um, yeah, Prey, uh, don't want to talk too much about it because, again, part of the fun of Immersive Sims is figuring out things for yourself. Uh, I uh, One of the things I do love is that one of the weapons, quote-unquote, you get is literally this foam dart crossbow. But the little um, twist with it is, is that the foam darts have a capacitive tip. So you can use it to actually shoot touchscreens and basically open doors, close doors. And that's one of the ways that you can actually, um, even if like by rebounding it off of surfaces to hit something, you can use that to kind of sequence break if you want to. There's stuff like um, Normally, for heavy objects, you need a certain um, level for uh, leverage in order to pick them up and move them. But those heavy objects, even if you don't have enough leverage for them, are still physics objects. So you can still kind of use another object to nudge it like bit by bit out of the way if you want to in some instances. Now, RPG site actually reviewed this game, and I, I reviewed it back in 2017. Like in hindsight, I really don't think we should have. It doesn't really have much of any RPG DNA other than like very general, like super, <laughs> super, you know, curveball type stuff that doesn't really hold water. But we did. Um, so I guess it should have been more of like a, like a branching article or a feature of some sort. Uh, but I enjoyed it as well. And I don't really like I, I had played a little bit of Dishonored and I had played like the new Doom, but I really hadn't played System Shock. I guess I'd played Bioshock Infinite, but not the originals at the time. And I really kind of liked that first person. I, I like first person games in general. I'm the sort of person where this is going to sound silly, but you 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 sell me on immersion in that sense. And I actually do believe that there is something there that's hard to quantify. Like I always played the um, Skyrims and the Fallouts, the newer ones in first person. Uh, Cyberpunk, I am 100% on board with being first person. I just really think that that perspective can allow for some really cool storytelling. Uh, yeah. Well, so. One thing I want to, yeah. One thing I want to say about Prey is that I absolutely love the art style and it goes for this. It's not even retro futuristic, but the very, well, I guess it is kind of retro futuristic if, in, a, in a way, but it has this very unique sort of appeal to it. And like you see any screenshot of the game, even if you, even if like the UI was turned off, you'd probably be able to tell it's prey, just because of the art design and the levels, and also the lighting is really well done. The uh, 
I was going to say it's kind uh, of comic booky. It's kind of but grimy at the same time. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to describe it, but it's hard. It just it has a very distinct flair to it in terms of how it yeah. presents itself. One of my favorite things is that so there's tons of monitors and stuff around the world. You, you always are like checking that. Like if you see a monitor, like your first instinct is to check it to see, oh, is there any information here? Oh, is there any? Is there like a map here? Is there like utilities I can mess with? That sort of stuff. Uh, one of the things I absolutely love about the monitors, especially if you're playing at a higher resolution like I did, 1440p, you can really tell you, they actually implemented scan lines in the monitors in the game. And if you go up close enough to them, you can see the scan lines. And I love it. Huh. It's just, it's it's not a very long game, It's uh, but it's definitely pretty unique. And I think Arcane kind of has this weird kind of corner that they've, occupy really well i'm really always kind of excited to see what that team's working on uh though i guess if i say that i really should go back and play uh dishonored 2 because i never really have and i heard it does everything the first game did only better yes and the and the reason what part of the reason why i kind of threw the ball at you first to start out with that is because i've been playing another game from the publisher i've been playing a doom eternal i just started and beat it over the last week uh and it actually does have a prey Easter egg in there that I just happened to stumble upon, which I thought was kind of cool. Because normally I never yeah. see those things, uh, except for the obvious ones, like the Commander Keen helmet in your Doom Guy's office or whatever. Uh, yeah. And I don't play a lot of first-person shooters. Like I've, I've just talked about playing a lot of first-person games, but not pure shooters like that. Like Doom is the purest of the... Well, maybe not anymore, because it does kind of have like the traditional modern... Uh, like progression in terms of like you you earn exp in doom eternal and you get like doom level and I'm like i don't care about any of this why is this in here but maybe this is just how games have to be these days from big publishers i don't know uh and i don't want to talk a lot about doom eternal because i think both james and george have talked about it uh over the last few months first of all i just want to say it came out in march which feels like five years ago at this point um, like it only came out less than a third of, or about a third of a year ago or something like that. That's crazy. Uh, but, uh, it does a lot of small, really smart things that not, they're not individually profound, but there's a lot of things that, that it does that are just so well, that it works so well together. For instance, if, uh, Doom Eternal is the sort of game where you're constantly, uh, bottoming out and picking up health or ammo or armor. Like, it's not the sort of thing that you ever have a resource that you just are never at risk of running out of. So it's well-balanced in that sense, where there's not too many or too few health pickups, ammo pickups, uh, armor pickups. And then, like, if you have a set of weapons and you're using your scroll wheel to switch between them, it will only ever switch between weapons that you currently have ammo for. You There's no way to accidentally land on a weapon that you cannot fire unless you're pressing the uh, numbered keys. And when you pick up a weapon, if you have no ammo and you pick up some like that you managed to get from a box or whatever, you'll automatically switch to it, which I know neither of those two things are that are like, you know, really like 200 IQ things, but just two, they're just two really smart decisions that someone had to think about and say, like, this matches perfectly to the flow of the game that we have here. And it's, it just ends up being like such a well-made smartly put together system that they got for their for their little combat arena encounters 
Yeah, I already talked about Doom, obviously, a few months ago, but I really respected how the game Eternal was designed around, like, a specific gameplay loop. There, like, there is a quote-unquote right way to play Doom Eternal, and it's very clear based off of, like, how their specific weapons are, like, almost designed to be effective against certain enemy types and how you have to use pretty much all the tools at your disposal. It makes the uh, combat always feel like you're uh, switching things up, which um, when I played Doom 2016, I felt like one of my main issues was that once you got the super shotgun and upgraded it a bit, you almost never switched off it. <laughs> so Yeah. Um, so, and one thing that is another little small thing that it does that clearly shows exactly what it, how you want, how you're quote unquote supposed to play it is that it gives you three different melee weapons. It gives you the chainsaw, gives you the blood punch, and it gives you the, um, the crucible sword or whatever they call it. And the, each of those three things has slightly different utility. And then that's on top of glory kills as a mechanic in the first place. So you're entirely expected to be getting close and then backing off and then getting close and then backing off. And like you need ammo, you find you know, a zombie that you can chainsaw or if you if you uh, end up healing your health by getting close and using a glory kill and picking up the health drops, you can then blood punch your way out of the swarm. Like, it's just everything fits so well together in terms of uh, having, not just sitting on one weapon, like, this is my favorite weapon, I'll always have ammo for it and I'll just keep using this no matter what. I've heard people describe Doom Eternal as like a character action game but in first person. And I agree with that, like, especially when you're getting into the flow of things and some of those uh, combat rooms, like, that you can find the keys for. I forget what they're called. Um, I think they're Slayer Gates. Slayer Gate, yep. Yeah. Um, I definitely got that vibe. I'm not sure if, well, I'm not even sure. Um, Brian, do you play anything like uh, Devil May Cry or Bayonetta or? I've only played DMC. Like, I'm sorry. Don't judge me. <laughs> It was free on PlayStation Plus, so I played it. Yeah. But uh, um, what was I going to say? I guess I also do know what you were talking... I remember when you first brought it up a few months ago, you kind of talked about how you felt about that Marauder enemy, which kind of a lot of people had... I don't want to say had an issue with, but it was kind of like the boogeyman of the game. And so when that first boss fight showed up, I wasn't 100% sure how to fight him. But I ended up figuring out I can stagger him with rocket launchers. And then I learned that he's much easier to stagger with the super shotgun. And then once you learn that, he ends up being kind of, it kind of ends up being the enemy that you keep your super shotgun ammo for. You talk about how different enemies are kind of vulnerable to different weapon types. Like the super shotgun isn't clearly the best choice for any other enemy, but it is for him. And I know what you meant now when you, you fire with the super shotgun to stagger him and you switch to either the rockets or the arbalest or whatever to fire then you go back to super shotgun to stagger him again and uh, i actually kind of liked that there was a really fast melee monster like in 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 the swarm of enemies that are shooting fireballs and energy beams or whatever at you to have something coming right at you and just like charging head first it, again it, it's just kind of not only are there different weapons that each have their own different utilities or whatever but enemy variety or enemy like uh, in terms of designing the encounters themselves, having like they they're, they're I can't call it a specific moment, but they're very deliberate about like 
they'll put imps or or cacko demons up in the up in the uh, higher areas that are firing down on you while prowlers or whatever are coming in and swarming you. So you got to you not you don't only need to move laterally, but you got to move vertically and uh, just you always have to be you always have to think on your toes. It's, and it's almost kind of like this instinct thing where you can't just simply plan something out and execute it. You, you can only ever plan as far as like the next demon. I don't like how the game tells its story. And I know uh, talking about Doom's story is a bit silly, but if I could have one fewer game with someone talking in my ear and saying, I'll mark this on your map, like I would, I would appreciate that. I just really don't think it needed that with Vega talking to you and then later another character and they're just constantly telling you, you got to do this, you got to do this. And like the levels are pretty still linear. They're wide linear, but they are linear, just arena stringing to hallway, stringing to arena. Like I don't need someone. There, there is some storytelling there where it's not just uh, functional information. But a lot of times it's just like you got to you got to turn on the gate or you got to you got to hurry or before it's too late. And I'm just like, ah, I, I just wish I, I wish the game was a little bit more quiet in that sense. Like yeah, it feels like benefited a lot. Go ahead. Yeah, it feels like the story, like a bunch of things with Doom Eternal, they kind of dialed the camp up to eleven. Like, uh, just it, it's a number of things. It and it's very clear that Eternal specifically is a much more cartoony game than 2016. Like, obviously, you've got the just floating power ups, which I guess were in 2016, but not nearly as prevalent as in here. The graphics are a lot more uh, colorful. You've got the whole like hilarious like climbing animation that you have for three platforming sections. Which, funnily enough, I guess someone can make the argument that so far Doom Eternal is the best three D platformer of twenty twenty because there hasn't been any other ones. It's it's definitely an interesting sort of shift from twenty sixteen. And I remember it's George kind of sorry. Uh, I remember George talked about like how he hated the swimming sections, but I don't really feel like there were that many. Like I was okay with them. And they're all pretty short. I want to say there's only like three, maybe four of them, and they're all usually like, like two minutes or three minutes long. Yeah, but I will say the last um, the last few ones are a bit more annoying. Uh, one thing I think is universally despised is any of the sections where you have the purple goop that you can't jump out of. Oh yeah. Luckily there's only a couple of those, but I do remember them because they suck. Um, because in a game all about movement to, well, I guess it's okay to be inconvenienced to some extent where it's like, now you can't do this as well as you normally can uh, deal with it. I figure out a way out of it, but I don't know. I feel like they could have they could have done that slightly differently. I wish they had an alternative to give them, but I really don't. But I do remember those sections where something's firing at you and you can't get out of the way of the shots because you just you're moving slowly and you can't jump. I also do like how almost all the later game encounters they're designed in a way to keep things tense by doing something very specific. They'll throw in like a boss type. Like I think they call them heavy demons in the game. Either it's an archvile or a marauder or a, um, a tyrant. And basically, there'll be one of those in the center of the arena or whatever while everything else is chasing you and firing at you. And then when you finally down it, they almost always throw a second one at you of a different type. So basically, it tries not to let you like 
be relieved for any long period of time. You'll finally down that tyrant after running around chainsawing other smaller monsters for ammo or whatever. And then as soon as you do, a marauder appears on the, on the screen or something like that. So that's another thing that I thought was just a little small thing that's not profound on its own, but it's just smartly done. But yeah, um, those I saw that you mentioned Prey and I'd been playing Doom on a whim. So I just thought that'd be an interesting tangent to start out with. We don't just play RPGs uh, as evidenced by half of these podcasts. But yeah. speaking about RPGs, let's, play, let's talk about something a little bit more... Uh, in our wheelhouse uh, was something that Adam's been playing over the last week and a half. I forget if you talked about this last week or if this is going to be brand new. This is new, but to be honest, I don't really want to talk about it too long because I don't think either of these games are really that interesting yet, but okay. Yeah. So anyways, uh, I wanted to play the PC version of final fantasy four. I've already played, I played the GBA and the PSP version of it. And one kind of infamous thing about uh, Final Fantasy IV is that it is the original version, the 2D version, is that it is very, very easy. You can pretty much get through the whole game just by attacking and the occasional heal. Like, all you have to do is just attack everything and heal. That's all you have to do. And you can pretty much beat the game, no problems at all. So... One reason why I wanted to play the 3D version was it is supposedly uh, a little bit more challenging, and also it has a hard mode. So, and also it has a new system in the game called augments, which basically are like these abilities, these unique abilities that you gain throughout the game that you can attach to your character. For example, one of the augments is counter, and so if you if you equip the counter ability on Cecil, he whenever he is attacked, he will counter. Um, there's also an ability called piercing magic, which if you equip that onto a character like Rydia, that means when if an enemy has puts up a reflect barrier, it doesn't matter. Rydia can basically just pierce it uh, and go right through it with her magic, and that's that's actually very useful in a couple situations. So it just it's always been kind of spoken to me about as if it was like a little bit more mechanically interesting than the original Final Fantasy IV. Um, and maybe more satisfying in, 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 in a challenge. So I just kind of decided on a whim, while things are a little bit slower in the summer months here for RPGs, I'm just going to play this version, just to kind of compare. Did, did you play the three the DS version? No, I've never played the 3D version, so I, sh- I guess I should explain. Um, so the DS version came out in 2010, something like that. And uh, the DS version has... A 3D art style now, so it's it's very uh, cheating. Very, Sorry, 2007. Jeez, it's older than I thought. Uh, anyways, uh, it has a very chibi, very low polygon art style because, of course, it was a 3D game on D, on, D, on the DS, so it's not visually a looker. I think it does pretty well with the the resources it had. Um, that version was ported to. PSP, I think, to mobile phones, and the PC version is actually a port of the mobile version. And it's just a oh, DS, uh, iOS, Android, Windows. Okay, I think maybe Final Fantasy three was on PSP. It's always kind of weird how like that one went to PSP. Well, but Final Fantasy four has that cool complete collection version on the PSP. That's I wish. Ah, uh, that's right. Yeah. There's too many versions of Final Fantasy four. Okay, so. The PC version is basically the 3D version, so it has all the same things, a few slight tweaks here and there. But 
one thing that's kind of weird about the the PC version and the 3D version in general that you kind of that I kind of picked up on like reading up on it is that it's it has systems in place to entice multiple playthroughs for some reason. It that feels like such a bizarre thing to me for a game like this. Like why would you want to play through it twice? But basically how the augment system works, if you haven't played Final Fantasy 4, there are a lot of temporary characters. Um like you you end up with a party of five characters, but before that point, at the end of the game, you have like Palam and Porum, you have Edward, you have Yang, uh, you have Tella, you have Sid. Uh, I think that's everyone. And all these characters are characters you can play it with for a bit in the game, but not at the end of the game. And so, if it was just situated normally, you would probably never give these characters augments because you'd, you'd be thinking, I'm not going to waste an augment on one of these characters. They're going to be leaving my party soon, right? Um, so, that makes sense. But the game has a system in place where if you give one of these temporary characters one or two augments, when they leave the party, they will give you better augments in return. But you don't know what they are. I don't, it is kind of cool conceptually, but you don't know what they're going to be. But also, you don't have enough augments to kind of give each temporary character enough to get all the ones in return. If that makes sense. Like, if you give Edward a couple of augments before he leaves, and then you give Tella a couple of augments before he leaves, and then you give uh, Pal and Porum augments before they leave, you are going to run out because there's just not enough. And what that means is, if you also want to do that, you're kind of, you might be like wasting augments that are like kind of useless on that character that might be useful on, say, Cecil or somebody. But you're kind of wasting it just to give them an augment, just to get one in return that is hopefully better, but you don't know. And let me let me guess. The, there's like a table somewhere that tells you who gives what. There, there are every guide for this game. If you look it up, will have. Bit kind of like planned, like here's an optimal augment path, or you know, you want to give this character these augments, give this character this augment, give this one to this character. But basically, what how that gets into this multiple playthrough thing is that your augments carry over from playthrough to play from playthrough to playthrough, and so basically, there pretty much any guide or look through this game is going to tell you like on your first playthrough make, do get these augments from these characters and then on your second playthrough get these augments from these characters and then you'll have an ideal augment set up you kind of have to do that in order to have enough and also there's things like um for example uh there's a couple of super bosses that you can only play on a second playthrough so that's kind of in a way to entice the player to play again yeah and cool. also like at the very end of the game, you get like the limit break augment, which is basically the break damage limit thing. Um, you literally get that at the credits. So it's kind of like on your second playthrough, now you can break 999 damage. And personally, what I'm getting at here is I just think it's kind of weird that this game has this system or systems in place to basically say, in order to kind of get the most out of these mechanics, you have to play through a second time. And it's kind of expecting you to. And that just kind of sits weird, doesn't sit well with me. Like, Final Fantasy IV is not the type of game you'd usually play through twice, at least not right away. And that just, I don't know, that's just kind of bizarre, the way that's set up. I don't know how I would change it. Maybe make it just so augments can be attached and uh, unattached at will and just have only, you can only use so many per character or something. But 
they're permanent. You have to kind of use augments on throwaway characters to get better ones in return. It's just awkward. And I do think the game is definitely more challenging than the 2D version, which is appreciated. But the augment system is just kind of awkward. And that's basically my take on it. So, like, New Game Plus isn't completely new to Final Fantasy. Like, I know Final Fantasy XII has, has it. At least the Zodiac Age does. But to, to, to have it so that it's designed not as kind of this extra thing, but almost as this, like, intended thing for, um, like, the fact that you unlock damage limit only for New Game Plus is a bit weird to me. Um, and I do want to comment just before someone else listens and realizes that we have it, is that there are versions of Final Fantasy IV that do allow you to get those temporary party members back. But not the original, and not this one. So yeah, I think, I think the PSP version actually said, basically just says, "Here's your character back if you want to use them." So, so. Uh, that I wish that version of the game came out uh, to more systems because if I remember right, it's on PSP, and that's it. It didn't ever go to Vita or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it's one of the, I think it's one of those PSP games that does not have a digital version either. So it's literally score or whatever. The yeah, the, the only way to officially own it is to have the umd so <laughs> that's it but uh that's i just remember that that's the version of the game that i played the only one which is why i keep going back to it and i just really like like to me when if you showed me the original final fantasy 4 and said we're going to re-release this for modern i know both of these versions of the game are also a decade old but we're going to we're going to we're going to update this and re-release it how do you imagine it would look? I'd be like, well, it'd probably look more like this PSP version and this DS version that I don't think anyone really kind of was asking for. I think there's a little bit of a charm to its like very, very simple geometry and 3D texture or 3D whatevers. But, uh, you know, as a 3D game on original DS, there's, I don't, I don't care what resolution you're rendering that in whatever emulator, there's, there's only so much you can do to make that presentable. And maybe that's me being a little bit hard on just something that is just you know, arbitrary, just how it visually comes across, but it's not it's not the way I would play the game. Or in terms of the in terms of the two D versions the PSP version's two D art, I it, I first of all is definitely better than the Steam version of Final Fantasy five and six. Like clearly the, the that sprite style in those versions is so baffling to me, like what they were trying to do there. I do understand some criticisms that the two D version of the P the PSP version of Final Fantasy Four is still maybe a little bit too clean or maybe too smooth in terms of the, the sprite work. But I think it's overall pretty good. And yeah, I think I kind of benefited from that comparison that you made where when it came out, it was like, man, this looks different. I don't like it. And then the uh, Final Fantasy 5 and 6 mobile version came out. Like, never mind. It could fine. be worse. <laughs> um, but yeah. So what's your final thought on... Uh... I think that pretty much does cover my thoughts on the game. Uh, the challenge is appreciated. It's no longer like brain dead easy, like the original version of Final Fantasy IV and most 2D versions are. The Ogwood system has a few interesting things you can do with it, uh, despite some wonky implementation that I think are neat in terms of like customizing how you're playing the game. For example, one neat sort of combination of augments you can do is you can put the counter augment on Cecil, which means any attack he receives, he will counter with a physical attack. You can put the draw attacks argument on him, which means that every enemy will attack him first, as long as he has, he's alive. And you can also put the kick augment on him, the kick being one of Yang's moves, where he basically attacks all enemies at the same time with a kick. 
So basically, every enemy will attack him, and he'll counter with a kick and attack and hit everything. So that's actually useful in a couple of places in the game where a lot of the random battles have like four or five enemies. Because he'll just basically counter once and kick everything, and oftentimes it beat them all in one kick. So it's just kind of there are some neat things you can do with it. There's just some larger macro scale implementation that I just think is kind of weird. So I guess just because you haven't mentioned it at all, do you have any comments about like the story or the narrative or the characters at all? Final Fantasy IV is kind of the first Final Fantasy game that had like a more outward story. The other games before it did have ones, especially Final Fantasy II. To Final Fantasy II was actually probably the most story driven before then. So Final Fantasy IV kind of was maybe more one of the first modern JRPG stories. I do think it's kind of really it's kind of silly how the game is pretty much like a sequence of character sacrifices up until the end. It's like it's really cheap drama in that way. It's like you have the the twins sacrificing themselves, you have Yang sacrificing himself, you have uh Tella kind of pretty much doing like a uh, a last chance ditch effort sacrifice on himself. It, it kind of gets a little bit silly, and especially when you're playing it with a 3D version. When you, especially when you play it in a 3D mode, where it's like there is a little bit of voice acting, and it's kind of like just a little bit more dramatic. It's just kind of it is a little bit eye rolling at times, but uh, you just can't take it too seriously, I guess. So, James, you had another game that you had uh, put on your list here that I'm not familiar with. Um. Okay, so just to kind of give some perspective here, um, if if you ha- if you're listening to the podcast and you haven't uh, watched uh, our new video that went up on the YouTube a few days ago, casual mode for um, Valkyrie Profile, uh, the game that we were planning to do for the next one was um, uh, Devilet in Wonder Labyrinth, which is a sort of Metroidvania with RPG elements that Team Ladybug is developing in early access on Steam. Um, now, Team Ladybug is a company that basically specializes in these sorts of Metroidvanias. Uh, the reason I bring them up and the reason I, I kind of wanted to showcase their next game is because they're actually the developers that did the uh, Shimigami Tensei uh, Synchronicity Prologue. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, that free uh, PC Jack Bros sequel type thing that Atlas released for free on their website as basically a uh, advertisement for uh, the Strange Journey uh, re- uh, release on 3DS a few years back. Um, so since I wanted to do a, I wanted our next video to be about that game, uh, um, Dealing Wonder Labyrinth, which is a Another game from Team Ladybug. I figured it would be best for me to um, to play their previous game on Steam first, so I could have a bit more uh, um, a bit more perspective because I hadn't played Synchronicity Prologue in a bit, and I was pretty sure that there would be more uh, in uh, more in common with their last um, release game and whatnot. That sort of thing. Uh, Toho uh, Luna Nights is a Metroidvania. By them, same engine as Synchronicity Prologue, same engine as Deal and Wonder Labyrinth. Um, if you guys don't know what Toho is, um, it's essentially a it's a franchise that's almost entirely developed by fans. 
because the original creator for the series, uh, Zune, essentially lets fans have free reign with whatever they want to do with the characters and the world, as long as they're not um, bullet hells, because the original Toho series was just a series of bullet hells that has a very long history. I think it, there were, um, it got started on like the PC-98 or something. Well, that's probably entirely wrong, but it's been around since like the 90s at least. And um, so Toho Luna Nights is a fan game that sold on Steam because they're allowed to do that via the leeway that Zoom gives to anyone that makes fan works of the franchise. And it's a action-focused Metroidvania with a bit of a twist on it um, that uses a bunch of the um, kind of gameplay features of the actual Bullet Hell Toho games. Like, there's a mechanic called Graze in Toho, where if you almost, if you barely touch, but, like, barely or almost touch an enemy attack, but not enough that you would act, it would actually hit your hitbox and that you would take damage, you get a bonus four multiplier. And there's a similar function in um, Toho Luna Nights where your main attack requires MP because it's a fast uh, shooting projectile. You're basically throwing knives and that requires MP. So one of the things you can do is you can actually graze past an enemy to regain MP or you could graze past an enemy to kind of regain um, health and stuff like that. It has a really interesting time mechanic because the main character has the ability to either stop time for a short period of, for, for a moment or to slow down time for, for a moment. And the level design really makes use of that in some very interesting ways. Like there are some platforms or some objects that have a specific outline that says, okay, this will still move if time is, time is stopped or this will only move if time is stopped. There are um, boss fights, which are really entertaining and have a good variety. There's some attacks that you have to either slow down time for, you have to stop time for, and you have to know which one to do when in order to dodge attacks or get your uh, damage in. It's, a very fr- it's a, not a very long game. It took me about four hours to finish, but I uh, had a bunch of fun with it. I... Honestly, check it out if you want to. If you yeah, I'm, are I'm looking at it, uh, so I had not heard of this game at all. It's just not not really in my um, what I would be looking. For. I don't play a lot of platformers, period. But I'm like, it's got this cool kind of like Game Boy Advance esque art style. It's got an overwhelmingly positive rating on Steam, which is pretty rare. So it's definitely highly regarded. And I'm uh, so this one it says it's being was developed by Team Ladybug. Which is, you said it's a fan game. Like, can you describe that again to me? Like, how that all fits together? Okay. So, the way the Toho franchise works is that Zoom, the creator of the franchise, basically gives free reign for fans to do whatever they want with, with the characters and world, as long as it's not more bullet hells. That includes selling fan games if they want to. So Toho itself is probably more well-known for some of its derivative fan works, like uh, manga, songs, like, uh, and obviously fan games. Um, I know that NAS America has actually published a few Toho games themselves, like Toho fan games on consoles. So there are like even physical releases of Toho fan games because Zoom really 
couldn't care less. He's actually supportive of people using the IP for their own game ideas. And then it's one of those is, is uh, this team ladybug. They decided to yeah. take a go at it. Okay. It's a very interesting. Some other uh, fan games. Like, there, here's one, Toho Blooming Chaos, which is like a bullet hell, but uh, designed like a top-down, almost Zelda-like. Like, I'm, like, I'm just kind of clicking through them right now because this is not something I'm familiar with. And... Yeah, I know that a few years back, um, XC published a console version of Toho Scarlet Curiosity, which was almost like similar gameplay to a E6, like, Napishtim engine, like, East game. And then there's also, like, um, Toho Gensa Wanderer, which is a roguelike. There's fighting games. There, I don't know if there's any specific rhythm games yet, but yeah, there's so many different Toho fan games. It's kind of ridiculous. That's kind of cool. I feel like this is something like I should have known about, but I just never did because I don't know. They never released. There's no fan RPGs. I want to see an RPG maker game. Any final um, thoughts on uh, Luna Knights? Um, again, not a very long game, but it doesn't overstay its welcome. I feel like it could have been maybe a little bit longer. Um, but uh, I still had a ton of fun with it, and it's definitely one of the better Metroidvanias I've played. Um, so I'm going to also mention the last game I played this week, and I kind of like played through a bunch of games this week, wasn't expecting to. Uh, the reason I mention it specifically is because actually Adam is the one that gifted me this game back in 2018. I finally got around to playing it. Uh, Return of the Oberden. It's a uh, detective-type game by Lucas Pope, uh, creator of Papers, Please. Um, it's very, very different from pretty much every other game out there in the sense that you have two main mechanics. You have a book that gives at the start just gives you a picture of a ship's crew, and you have a list of names their nationality and what their station is on the ship. And you play as a insurance claim adjuster for the East Indian um, trading company. And you're exploring a ghost ship that um, showed back up after being missing in action for four years. And you have to go around and use this pocket watch that if you um, inspect the courts, It'll showcase the last few moments of that body's life. It's kind of in a similar way to how, like, I'd say Ghost Trick works, where you go back in time, see what happens. You don't try to prevent it, but you basically go back in time, get information from that deaf, and use the uh, hints or the information that you find from those um, um, those uh, events to try and find out more about, okay... Who killed this person? How well, how did they die? And you want to basically try and fill out the entire book about what happened to everyone on the ship. And it, the game says outright at the beginning that decisive information is rare. So a lot of the times you have to really be paying attention. In some cases, you have to kind of make educated guesses about uh which which character is um, like what their connection is to specific other crew members in order to extrapolate what their own station might be and stuff like that. 
So I've played Papers, Please, and your description of this game, I can sort of see of Return of the Oberdin. I can sort of see the common DNA there. Oh, we have a guest. We're going to take a tangent. This is Chaman Wu. Go ahead and introduce oh, yourself. Oh, how's it going? Yeah. Could you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. One second. I'm just uh, changing your volume up. So Chow recently, uh, he's an RPG site contributor, and he uh, recently did a review for us for um, Brigandine, correct? That's the most recent thing right. done. So uh, it's nice to have you on. Uh, you just randomly said you wanted to jump in, and here you are. Okay, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that's why I played over the probably last month now, I think it is. It's been, been quite a while, actually. So yeah, we've been, we were just in the starting half of our podcast where we're talking about what we've been playing. We're just uh, kind of winding that down. So uh, James and I talked about a little bit of some first-person shooters slash immersive sims we've been playing. Adam's been playing Final Fantasy IV. We've been talking about uh, Toho and about Return of the Oberdin. So I guess well, we punt punted over. Really so what have you been playing? Yeah, what have you been playing the last week? I, I've been playing the, the Record of Lost War. Um, was it... Uh, the Jeet in the Lambert in the Wonderland. Oh, the, the, how, uh, <laughs> yeah, how on brand or whatever? Because uh, uh, we were actually planning on uh, James was planning on having us play that for a video chat feature tomorrow. Is it? So, what well, do you think about I, it so far? I'm from the '90s, so we were kind of big into the Record of Lost Wars because there wasn't like many of the high budget fantasy anime, and it was one of those. Um, kind of thing that fits the genre, you know? Um, there are plenty of, like, Record of the Lost War games. You got, like, the one for Dreamcast, and there's even one for Super Nintendo. Has there been any other recent ones, or is this kind of the first return to the uh, IP in a while? Uh, I think the last one they had was an MMO, but they were a J- Japanese only, and I don't know anything about that because I don't really touch too many MMOs. So what sort of game is this? Uh, what's the full title of this one that's on Early Access? Uh, it's called... Um, let me just look it up. Uh, it should be, should be Record of Lost War, Digit, and uh, Wonder Lambert, I think that's what it's called. The name looks like Deedlit, but it's pronounced Digit. That's what it's called. I, I just I haven't seen the anime in a while, so I forgot the exact pronunciation. I mean, even though... Like, I don't even think they got the original voice actress voicing these characters. Yeah, they pronounce it uh, Deedlet in uh, the uh, anime because I've been watching that the last couple of days. So that's, that's kind of like what I've been playing through because it's like, yeah, this is actually like a very good like Castlevania clone. The game it's really specialized in like using like dual spirits. Like you got a wind spirit and a fire spirit, and your attacks and your attributes can be changed depending on what spirit you're using. Yeah, I do kind of see, like, the only Castlevania game I've played is Symphony of the Night. I'm like, man, this seems to be very inspired by Symphony of the Night. So I kind of have a random comment uh, about the genre titling and labeling here. From what I understand it, how it should be is that if a game has Metroid elements, as in, like, getting upgrades to encounter to explore new areas with some backtracking, you know, sort of, in, in going through new locations that you couldn't have before because of a new upgrade for traversal that you got. That's the Metroid half. And then things like leveling up and stats, that's the Vania half. So when a game is a Metroidvania, 
that is an RPG. So um, it's kind of it's kind of amusing in a way when people try to label like, is this game a Metroid game or a Metroidvania game? And it kind of depends on if there's stats and levels uh, along with the 2D side scrolling exploration elements. Well, I mean, our website it's not it's not common to see genre websites, and half of them are RPG focused. Like you have RPG site and RPG fan and uh, RPG gamer, and no matter what we cover, people are going to say, "Why are you covering this?" Like this isn't an RPG. Like you see it for Monster Hunter and you see it for um, Frey. We covered that for some reason. Uh, but like at some point you just got to be like, okay, like that's fine. If you don't think it's an RPG, that's no, we're not here to be arbiters of the genre. Like I'm not going to disagree with you. It's everyone has their own kind of personal opinion of what, what constitutes that or even what constitutes what a Metroidvania is. But this um, Deedlet and Rondo Labyrinth definitely looks like whatever you consider Symphony of the Night to be, this is the same ball of wax yeah uh reading up because i knew that like record of lotus war like was uh compared to like a dnd campaign but like reading the wikipedia page you're like no the series actually started off as a homebrew dnd campaign <laughs> literally like the ip so, itself or yeah so these characters are kind of like uh what's that voice actor um dnd campaign that's blown up into its own huge critical thing? role yeah, like it's like those characters. Yeah, but it's like so. I guess in a way, it is an RPG, like originally, in a sense. Like purely tabletop, like can't get more pure RPG than that. Yeah. So uh, this game being in early access, like, how is it limited? Is it only like a certain number of acts or a certain percent of the map, or like how does that work? Uh, for we got two there? zones. Like, um, there's a zone one, then there's a zone two. So as soon as you get out of those zones, the game's over, and it's just got to wait. When you say zone, what do you mean by that? Because I don't think of Metroid games usually does... Well, I guess Metroid games are kind of... Oh, Castlevania. Like, okay, the game, you start at Dracula's Castle at the beginning. Then as you go up, then you're in like the, the, the alchemy lab. Then as you go even further, you're in the library. You know, it's like... Well, it's coming back to me, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and depending on like the uh, Metroid game, like sometimes the different areas and Metroid games will be color coded on the map. Um, I know what uh, Chow's talking about though, because like both of the uh, Team Ladybug games I played have had a similar system where the zones don't really mingle too much, so they're like self-contained and they're very much color coded on the mini map. If you bring that up, and uh, if there's already two zones in uh, Wonder Labyrinth, I'm guessing it's about half way done because i feel like there's only like four zones in uh luna nights or something like that i i think they said they wanted about like six zones or something like that oh, so it's gonna be a little bit longer then yeah so uh do they have any like plan on when they're planning on like are, are they gonna are the zones gonna drop in as they add them or are they gonna hold them back and just release it at some point next year or have they kind of has the developers made any clear indication of what their plans are i think i think they want the next version to be like the full game i think that's what i heard so i think these two zones kind of like early access and after that you'll just have to wait for the full product so and considering the pace they're working at i think i think it took about like two months for Stage two that came out, so I'm guessing by the end of the year, then you probably yeah, so have the rest of it. 
Yeah, so I'm kind of just poking through their um, discussion page on Steam and their news updates, and I guess there was a big Stage 2 update just in late June, less than a month ago. And I'm just kind of poking through the different news uh, updates and discussions and things like that. It's kind of weird because early access games have been kind of a, a, a well that some developers of specific game styles have been going to. Like we've seen uh, Larian go to early access for their Divinity games and it's planned for, um, for Baldur's Gate 3. So it's just kind of interesting to think like how this could become more and more commonplace to play these games as they're in the middle of being developed. And we've seen it before for games like platformers or more PC centric genres, but it might be interesting to see it more for even even if this game specifically isn't a pure RPG. Wondering what other pure RPGs we might see in these kind of uh, development states, but playable to the general public. Yeah, one thing that I'm noticing that's kind of interesting while looking at the Steam page is that the current like uh, icon for the game on the Steam page is actually they had a fan art fan art contest, and I'm and it looks like the winner of the fan art contest got their uh, art incorporated into the. Uh, basically, if you have the game in your library, you're going to actually see the fan art as like an official part of the game's like assets, which is pretty neat. That's cool. Yeah, so we ended up kind of talking, uh, approaching this from a weird direction because one of the things I was going to shout out before we go into like news or topics is about how uh, we put up our, a video feature. And this has already been introduced, but this is when I was planning on introducing it. So I'm just kind of like re restepping the bounds here. Um, we put up a video feature called Casual Mode Valkyrie Profile as a first of hopefully a series um, that's just basically RPG site contributors talking over games that we either feel strongly about or it could be new games, it could be classic games. Uh, and the first one was Valkyrie Profile that Adam drove for us, and it's up on our YouTube page at RPGSite.net. And then James's plan for his first, he had mentioned this, but I'm just restating it to put it in order, is to do the similar thing for this early access uh, record of Lotus War, Deedlight, and Wonder Labyrinth. And we're just going to see how it goes, just see what the general reception to it. Reception has been pretty good. It's more long-form, free-form sort of videos rather than super uh, kind of produced. They're not like reviews or retrospectives or things like that. It's not like a documentary. Yeah, that's, that's partially for the title, Casual Mode. It's just like, here's the game that I've been playing or I've been excited to play. Here's my thoughts about it. Uh, and we'll have... Uh, other people chiming in, other contributors saying whether they've played it in their opinion or they haven't, what they think, things like that. So, uh, and so you're kind of getting, I guess, a sneak preview of what the second one will cover. So go ahead and look at it. Uh, we'll probably put those up midweek. We're still finalizing the uh, the schedule about when we'll record them and when we'll upload them. So yeah, uh, more content for our YouTube channel because it's something we've kind of been wanting to do for a while and we think that this format works for something that we can uh, do weekly and kind of stay consistent on. Well, I'm sure a lot of people like these kind of games. Like um, any games are old, people have some kind of attachment to it. So people probably want to see them talk about it because you know, like for a game like Valkyrie Profile, you know, I, a lot of people still have a strong attachment to that game, so they want to see it. So yeah, it's kind of weird because there's this, there's this almost like this no man's land where, uh, or this is my just perception is that you, you'd want to cover games that have had enough time passed where people have nostalgia for them. So like 10 or 15 years or older. 
Or we could do a video on a recent game, which obviously people are still forming their opinion on or they're currently in the middle of playing themselves. But if you do a game that only came out like three years ago, it feels like you haven't had the nostalgia build up yet and you've kind of missed the boat on when everyone else is covering it. So there's kind of like this valley that we might want to avoid, but we'll see what we end up like dialing in on as we do this because we're planning on doing it weekly, uh, seemingly weekly, should I say that? So we'll see uh, kind of what sort of games we end up nailing down in terms of... Uh, making this a series well one of the James other can play the, go ahead i was gonna say james can play the, the record loss more for Dreamcast. it's like kind of like a diablo clone and then uh we also have some features that i also want to shout out from the website uh in our typical written form uh alex donaldson put up a basically a 20-year retrospective on final fantasy 9 it's a game that's kind of near and dear to his heart, clearly. You can see that it reads through in his article for it. But it's also kind of like RPG site history lesson, because RPG site started as a Final Fantasy fan site, like specifically around the time of release of Final Fantasy IX. None of us here were old enough to host a podcast when that game came out. Uh, so uh, it's just kind of a cool article. Like It's obviously talking about Final Fantasy IX, but it is also talking about RPG site in general. So go ahead and take give that a read. I believe it is a our like top banner right now. Like it's the featured article on the front page of the website. And we also had something that I don't know if James wants to comment here, but we put up a review for the Story of Seasons Friends of Mineral Town release, which we've talked about plenty of times in the news context, but uh we have a review out for it that Danny Maddox wrote for us. And then James also put out a little kind of complimentary article about its pc version yeah definitely something a bit new for us but then again it's not like we usually get like uh multiple versions of the game at like the same time doubly so like the main reason we were able to do this for uh story seasons is we actually got code like what almost like a month before the embargo left or something crazy like that yeah yeah for, for, for those that don't know for, for a site like ours it just it just seems like it's very random almost like sometimes we'll get several copies of a game with plenty of time in advance and we can split like review duties and guide duties and maybe a video feature but a lot of times we get one version of a game like at launch or super close to it we don't have a lot of say in the platform we have some uh so it's just kind of what we we can't always plan out exactly what we want to do these are kind of at the whim of what you have access to and obviously some of the games we review are just games that we purchased and decide to review after the fact so just Depends on the inclination of the uh, of the PR uh, of the publishers and of our uh, contributors. A good example of uh, one of the latter, like games we just reviewed after the fact, like Higurashi. Like uh, we've been reviewing more and more VNs lately, and I like when I finished reading Higurashi, I was like, wait a second, Chapter Eight came out like in May, and obviously my review went up in June. It's like, hey, do you guys think that it would be worth doing a review? And basically, that's why. We even did a review for that. And then I did a review for Bug Fables. It just happened to line up with the console release, but that really wasn't my intention. It had come up it had come out late November on PC. I had played it in early May and I'm like, this game's pretty neat. I want to write about it. And then it came out for consoles. Kinda so also on this topic. Um I wanted to review Paper Mario uh Origami King for us. Even though it's not really an RPG uh anymore and I, I kind of wanted just to, you know, to have some thoughts on it and we can maybe, I can maybe discuss it with like an RPG slanted lens 
but Nintendo actually basically told us outright, we actually don't really consider this game an RPG. So, uh, you know, we're going to hold off on giving you a review code access right now. And that, that totally is sensible, but it's one of those things that like, yeah, that, that makes sense. But then at the same time, we've had Bethesda like willing to give us prey. Like they don't market that as an RPG, but they gave, you know, we had access to that. So really just kind of up to the whim of whoever at the time. So Chad, yeah, we're going to move into the, uh, oh, um, did you have one other comment? I was just going to start transitioning into yeah. the uh, news topic section. Yeah, I was just going to say one last like little quip is one of the uh, in-jokes is like everything seems like an RPG of some sorts these days. So Yeah, and it's something we're aware of very clearly. So people literally asked us where our God of War review was when that released a few years ago. Because it has like skill trees and stuff. It's like I've uh... actually seen people say like God of War twenty eighteen is actually an RPG. When I see that, I'm like, hmm. Yeah, that game is more of an RPG than Horizon Zero Dawn, and we got a code for Horizon Zero Dawn. <laughs> yeah, that's another weird thing. Like Horizon is kind of very loosely an RPG, but it's one of those things like when it was first teased and first announced, and like was before, it was pretty much an unknown property at that point. It was it, it was billed as an RPG. Like th- that's what the publisher and PR and everything was. Everyone was calling it. So we here at a genre side are like, of course we're going to cover this. You know, it's an RPG. That's what they're they're calling it. One and there wasn't a whole lot to like go off of visually or yet. It was only after the fact when we started seeing more of it and playing it. It's like this is only very loosely one. But at that point, we had already kind of uh, covered it up to that point. So we weren't just going to drop it, but it's just kind of interesting how that works is we started covering just because they call it, they were calling it one before we could really get to see it for ourselves and kind of make it, we can't make a determination after the fact, you know, right. It's also sometimes where like monster hunter games, Capcom will deliberately call those RPGs. And we kind of use that in a way as like, okay, we'll cover it. And then people say, why are you covering this? This is an RPG. And I'm not saying like the developer, you know, gets final say. Like you can't just like if Nintendo came out and said that Super Mario Galaxy was an RPG, you, you wouldn't just believe them outright. But uh it's just interesting where it's just like you have the developer's opinion, you have the writer's opinion, and then you have the you know the player or the reader's opinion. They don't always line up. This is kind of an aside, but you were showing me some Monster Hunter World uh yesterday, because of the new update, which we'll talk about. And like you were showing me like this equipment stat like ability setup that you had that you're preparing for one of the bosses and that seemed very rpg to me like if it was just a pure action game you wouldn't have like equipment with effects and stats and bonuses and passives like that that feels like abstracted you know skill stuff which is very much an rpg and less so of a action game so i saw that i'm like you know what this sort of fits what we the sort of things that we cover if it's not an RPG, it's definitely close enough that an argument can be made that it's RPG adjacent. So, yeah. So, going into like the topics of the week, uh, I guess we'll just start out with that. It's one of the smaller ones to put it at the bottom of the list, but we'll just instead of going back to it. Um, so, on Thursday or late Wednesday, uh, the, la- the most recent title update for Monster Hunter World came out. I don't want to talk about it too much because it is just one in a series of updates for a like a. It's all Monster Hunter World is kind of like that very near but not quite a game as a service sort of game it doesn't have like a season system where you're like 
keep playing and you get like login rewards or whatever. Well, you do get login rewards, so it's maybe closer than I am getting credit giving it credit for. But um, this update, this Alatreon slash Frostfang Barrier update that we cover on the website, uh, it's I just kind of wanted to to call it out because it is first of all it's the first one since things have been delayed due to COVID, so uh, it's the first one in a few months, and it's also the first one that's timed out where that it's accessible for console and PC at the same time. So it's kind of just notable in that way. And then more specific to the game, it's also been kind of like this, the boss that they added, Alatreon is, I won't go into specifics, but it's, it's designed in a way where people are having to actually think about changing up like cure sets that they've been running for years or not years, more than a year or several months anyways, because the boss has some very specific ways that, it's kind of intended to be fought. Mainly, uh, you have to be you have to be able to deal a high amount of elemental damage, which a lot of Monster Hunter builds didn't require for a lot of different weapon types. So people are actually having to go back and like rethink, like kind of get out of their you know the rut that they've been in for a while. Me included, I ended up and Adam was kind of watching me play it, uh, trying to gather up materials and build new armor to try to actually design something that would be suitable for fighting the new boss that they added. So that updates out. Uh, not an RPG, maybe, but there you go. So one of the bigger updates of the last couple of weeks, which is kind of, it was leaked and then kind of confirmed, but not really announced, but then announced this week, was the remaster of Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. So uh, this was originally leaked on the Microsoft Store, and we covered it like four episodes ago when they basically confirmed and said, yeah, it's coming out. But this week, the new announcement is uh, a trailer for the game. It's like a quick two-minute one, cinematic trailer. And then also the announcement that it's going to have a new expansion uh, to it called Fatesworn, which I think is something that none of us were expecting. First of all, has anyone here played Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning? Nope. I remember reading about it in like a Game Informer like before it came out. And it sounded interesting at the time, but I just never got around to playing it. I haven't played it either. It seems to be one of those games that people who have played it seem to have a pretty high opinion of it uh, in terms of being like a surprisingly good game for what it is. The one criticism I seem to hear about the game more than anything else is that apparently about halfway through the game or whatever, it becomes like really, really easy. So I was wondering, basically, I haven't dug up on this, but I was looking at the cinematic trailer and it's basically just um, you know, a warrior fighting a bunch of like demon spawn coming out of a portal or whatever, and then it talks about uh, Fate Sworn as a DLC. And I didn't know if like this is a new character, if she was from around before, or if it's meant to just be a stand-in for like the player-created character. I really don't know the details on that. I guess none of us do. But, yeah, I couldn't tell you. They but, haven't um, said anything about what Fate Sworn is, other than that it's coming next year. Basically, the announcement is that there's going to be an expansion, but otherwise, we don't really know what it is, other than its title. And we kind of talked about already, like the weird history of of uh, big, huge games and uh, the um, the Rhode Island studio that developed this and how they crash and burn. But we kind of you went through all that very deliberately in one of our last podcasts. So now it's just kind of weird. Like now it's falling under THQ Nordique, and it's being developed by. Kaiko? Like, I don't quite know, like, is there any crossover to, like, the developer, the expansion developers and the original developers? Or is it, like, we own the IP, we're putting someone else on it? 
Do we know any of those details? The only thing I know about Kaiko is that they did the uh, they did the uh, Dark Siders remasters. So like doing a remaster for this game seems like that's their wheelhouse. But as far as I know, they didn't do like original content for the Dark Siders stuff. So okay, so it um, makes sense that they would do the remaster portion of this game. But then are they also doing the uh, the new DLC? I guess it's kind of interesting. But yeah, this is a game that I kind of like word of mouth is obviously always a really good like selling point for any game. And this game has pretty good word of mouth. People don't actually call it like this is the best RPG of the last 10 years or whatever. At least I don't see that. But people think it just has like a lot of cool, interesting ideas. It's obviously kind of fun to play an RPG that's in like its own standalone universe and isn't attached to some like larger IP. So I'm actually interested in this. And it's coming out. Oh, I never announced this. The, uh, they announced that it's coming out on September 8th. I forgot if that was leaked with the original uh, Microsoft Store leak. But there it is. So only a couple months away. So this is kind of like one of those early fall. or Yeah. Um, or, or I guess September 8th, technically summer. Uh, uh, RPGs that I'm interested in trying. Another uh, kind of Western RPG, kind of in the same vein. being Only this one is more uh, something that I can speak more uh definitively on is that we learned about the next project from spiders the developers of like greedfall and also the technomancer so after they released or after they had while they were in the middle of in the release cycle for greedfall they got acquired by um big ben which is now nason nakon whatever they rebranded themselves to and over the last week they kind of had a nintendo direct style uh, announcement for a bunch of their games a lot of them not rpg focused uh they had like a new test drive unlimited and a few other games that they announced um the new werewolf game that we did cover which i think looks very bad it's not even on our podcast list i don't want to talk about it more than this but they did also announce steel rising uh which is an action rpg basically set in an alternate version of the french revolution where you play as like automaton um, some people have drawn near automata comparisons. I really don't think it has much. First of all, the teaser for it was just like here CG, like a slow panning shot over these like mannequins dressed like colonial, like a you know 17th century like Englishman or I guess Frenchman. So there's really not a lot to go on other than like a few paragraphs of PR marketing for what the game is. But they so, put the teaser um, up on our website. So, Spider's most recent game is Greedfall. They announced that. Actually, let me look this up. They they announced Greedfall very early, and then it took them a long time for them to like kind of come back to it. Okay, here we go. Greedfall was announced in February of 2017. That's when they first had like a teaser CG cinematic sort of trailer for it. And then we didn't see it again until June 2018. So it was like, you know, 15 months later or whatever. And considering Greedfall came out only like eight or nine months ago, they haven't really been working on this new game that long, probably. So I, I have a feeling it's going to be a while before we see this again. And that's also why it's probably this very short trailer. with a, they, they didn't give any idea of release date, not even a year. Um, they did say PC and next-gen consoles is the release platforms. Uh, Greedfall, I actually reviewed for the site, and it's uh, been 
Like it's kind of a very Bioware esque game in an era where Bioware's not making those sorts of games anymore, seemingly. I don't think it's quite as good as most of Bioware's output, but uh, yeah, I do think that it hits a lot of the same notes. So if this game is in the same vein, I do think that it uh, is something that I want to keep an eye out on, even though it might be a while before we see it. Though you do mention like Greedfall was announced in 2017 and we didn't see it again until 2018. It just makes you think of like comparing that to something like Cyberpunk, which had a much longer dormant period or things like that. But then we also have games like Paper Mario, which was announced and then released two months later. So it just really depends on the publisher and the type of game. But yeah, I guess we'll revisit Steel Rising from Spiders whenever we see it again, maybe this year, probably next. Uh, this is about Amazon's New World MMO, another game that we might not see for a while because they announced it was delayed. How's that for a segue? That yeah. was amazing. <laughs> amazing. Okay. So this game was originally supposed to come out in May. Remember that? They announced that late last year. And it was supposed to have like a an early beta period that I signed up for. And that was pushed back. And then it got delayed to like August or whatever. But none of that really matters, the specifics, because now it is delayed to spring 2021. Which obviously MMOs sound like a nightmare to develop. We're in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So I'm not like blaming them specifically for delaying the game. It's just that it's just another notch on this game's kind of seemingly troubled development. And then it's also kind of on the backs of Amazon's other property that they released this year, Crucible, kind of going back to beta state after kind of a fizzled out launch that didn't make any waves. So it's just kind of another, you know, stone thrown into that lake. Is that an idiom? I don't know. It is now (laughs) because... I, I guess we'll see this later because it's not going to be a while. And we, I don't know if this announcement talked about beta plans. Basically, the only thing they said about the delay, they didn't really give any specifics other than they wanted to ensure that there is enough mid-game and end-game content. So I wonder if maybe they realized... First of all, they didn't even get to the beta test yet. So like that was right. meant to start later this month. So this is all based on alpha feedback. Maybe they realize this is speculation, but that when people kind of completed whatever quest or story content there was in the game, there wasn't enough, you know, content to have people continue playing, like progression or gearing or whatever. You know, they they just realize that they need significant more time to to implement that. Um, well, I think from uh, so. Actually, on the Reddit R Games post for basically this information, uh, there was a few people that had apparently been playing the alpha tests that were kind of replying to people saying, yeah, all of the people that were playing the alpha kind of expected this because New World's been going through a bunch of changes that fundamentally change what sort of MMO it was going to be. Because like a while back, it was originally supposed to be an MMO where PvP was always enabled, so it was going to be... The end game was mostly going to be something like EVE Online, where it's like very much player created and that sort of stuff. But then they shifted it to an opt-in style for PvP. So because of that one change, they needed to make the PvE content more desirable. And from the sounds of things, it wasn't even COVID that seems like the most likely culprit why it got delayed. 
it just seems like they used it as an easy out because the game was having massive development issues and didn't really have a proper vision or direction in mind yet. Well, making content for an MMO that is able to last the typical MMO player's like attention. Well, not last, but it seems like it's so easy to spend a lot of time making content that ends up being like water through a sieve. They'll spend months. And I've seen this with Guild Wars 2. I've seen other people talk about it with Final Fantasy XIV, where you'll have this first update in months. It'll add this new PV dungeon or raid or strike or whatever it is for the type of game it is. Then players will beat it in a couple days or a week, and then they're left waiting again. It's so easy to spend so much time designing something, but it's very hard to make it something that's engaging, also repeatable, but not a grind. You know, you have to balance this on like four or five different axes. And they're building something from the ground up, which is difficult to do in any MMO anyway. I'm kind of interested in this game, not specifically because I am interested in New World as a game on itself. I am a little bit. But this because we haven't seen a big, pure MMO like this. from At least from this size of Western Studio release recently. So, Well, I hope that they can manage to release and like get a decent product uh, product out because after seeing how crucible did i can definitely understand why they decided to push it back it's and um i they announced the delay to spring 2021 which is kind of a very long delay like at this point i feel like why even uh that's basically like a year delay well nine months uh I almost feel like why even why even put a date? Like I, I'd almost like respect them more for an indefinite delay, but maybe that's too foreboding. Maybe that's too dour. I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah, I guess this is another game we'll just revisit in a while whenever we happen to see it poke its head in again. I'm still interested in it, but we'll see. There is no clever segue to this one. Uh but we did get a one of the other streams from this week was from Limited Run Games, which announced a bunch of physical editions for some indie style games. Many of them RPG or RPG adjacent. Uh, and a lot of these are games that we've talked about in the podcast on uh, in kind of different contexts. Uh, they've announced physical releases for Grandia HD Collection, which was kind of it was kind of in this weird spot because it was uh, Switch. And then the two PC releases, but digital only. Still not announced for PS4 or any other consoles, but it's getting a physical Switch release. Something else also getting a physical Switch release is East Origin, which was announced like the day earlier from Datemu, who also did the, the Xbox 360 uh, port. Well, like, Xbox One. Oh, they did um, PS as well? Yeah. Datemu has done all of the East Origin ports to consoles. So they originally did the PS4 and Vita port, then they did Xbox One later, which actually, ironically enough, both looks and runs better than the PS4 version because they had more time to work on it. Because the PS4 version had a weird issue where, like, if you've played East Origin, you'll know that as you're, like, attacking enemies, they, like, drop blood and whatnot, and they especially kind of burst into, like, gore when you kill them. Uh, a lot of that was kind of uh, missing from the PS4 version, not because of censorship, but because of an issue. Like they apparently they flipped a flag that they flipped or something, just 
they never, I don't know if they ever got around to actually fixing that, but the Xbox One version at launch uh, didn't have that issue. I'd imagine. Yes. There's other bugs too. There's like um, one of the bosses, like they literally just stop attacking after after a while. I was like, oh, it's like, this is easy. This is not hard as a PC version. The boss is stuck doing this pattern. <laughs> but yeah, yeah uh, um, limited run. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. You wanted to talk about the Ever Games they announced too. Yeah, I was just going to announce they also did a Castlevania Anniversary Collection PC release. Uh, coming Q3. Uh, oh yeah, Grandia is coming out August 7th. Uh, and East Origins also just general 2020. They did also announce like a cool like premium edition of it that we have linked on our webpage. Yeah. Bloodstained Curse of the like, Moon 2. Reproduction of Shantae. Are they? Yeah, they're they're they are first they're they are taking the original Shantae game and making a deluxe version for Switch. But then they are also making like an actual Game Boy Color cart, like a reproduction cart, if you want to play it on your Game Boy Color. That's oh, neat. Is that even considered a reproduction if it's like officially endorsed by the original developers? I'm not sure. You get the weird semantics here, but it's like an officially endorsed recreation of the game in a cart that you can play on your Game Boy. Without paying several hundred dollars for I think they go for thousands now. Well, not for long. <laughs> but um, and then the last game is uh, Bug Fables. Just getting it. Like, it released on Switch or every console, I guess, late May, and now yeah. it's getting a Switch physical edition sometime this year. Well, I guess they don't even specify this year. They just say TBD. I'll so. I'll be the first to admit that I'm definitely a bit biased for limited run games because I've been following them for, uh, ever since they their main bread and butter was the Vita. <laughs> back in like 2016 or something like that. Um, they're great folks. They very much care about the games that they uh, do physical releases for and the medium as a whole, of course. Kind of have to be if your whole shtick is to get physical copies of games so that they're like preserved. Like, and then I actually ended up buying, pre-ordering a copy of East Origin because I have a brother who basically video games don't exist unless they're on Twitch. Um, and... That's a game I think he would enjoy. Yeah, and it just—it's easier for me to gift. Here's a physical copy I can literally wrap in Christmas paper and you know give to you. Um, you can't really—you don't really get that with a digital game. I know. Yes, in some some ecosystems you can gift digital games, but it's not the same. So yeah, I bought I bought East Origin on Switch as a gift. So it's nice that they did that, that I can I can actually do that. Yeah, I've bought a few limited run games myself. I bought La Mulana EX on uh, Vita. I got The House in Fata Morgana. They released last year. I got Asked to Breed on PS4, which I wouldn't have bought if I'd known that finally they were going to port the PS4 changes to PC eventually. Because <laughs> the whole reason I bought the PS4 version was it seemed like they were never going to, the, to port the additions back to PC. So that's kind of... Uh, Oh, damn. But yeah, um, they're great. Honestly, I would buy more stuff from them, but yeah, it's just like they release so many games so often. It feels like every week they have like one or two more like new releases, and it's sometimes hard to keep track of everything they're actually like releasing. I remember back in like when they first started out, usually they'd have like maybe a release a month, and now it's just 
yeah, we have like at any given time, we have like three pre-orders on our site. And then like, like once a week, we have games that are like not pre-ordered, but basically, yeah, you have to um, get on the site at specific times during the day when they go up or your SOL. Uh, the, whole, the whole flash sale uh, FIFO. Uh, yeah, I had to do that for House of Cloud Morgana because uh, Vita cards obviously aren't, uh, you can't print them anymore. So it was very much a thing where, and that was a that was a big one for Vita fans and VN fans. So everyone wanted the Vita version specifically, but everyone just wanted the game in general. And like within like five minutes, all the copies were sold out. It was just crazy. And I wasn't clear on this, but uh, Castlevania Anniversary Collection, Bloodstained, Curse of the Moon 2, and Bug Fables are also getting physical releases on PS4 through limited remains. Yeah. I said Switch earlier, but uh, PS4 for those, Switch for those, plus Grandia. Also, for uh, Ace Origin and Mega Dimension Neptunia 7 as well. Yeah. Fun facts, or not so fun facts, I believe they actually did a physical release for Ark of Alchemist, and I feel generally awful for anyone that actually bought that and intending to play it and not just for collections purposes. If you bought it for your collection, you knew what you were getting into, but if you bought it because you actually wanted to play it, oh God, I am so sorry. That's one of our, if, you're, if you don't know the context there, that's one of the lowest reviewing games we have on the site that James had the pleasure of covering for us. And it's not even one of those cases where we were like an outlier, like literally on Metacritic, the score is like under 40 for the Switch version. Yeah. So all the rest of the topics from this week are kind of more uh, Diggy Tech, more just kind of smaller announcements. Dragon Mark for Death will launch for PlayStation Network on July 22nd. Uh, we've got Banner of the Maid, which is a strategy RPG coming to PlayStation 4 and Switch on August 12th. Another one that's kind of in like an alternate French Revolution setting. And then lastly, we got physical retail editions announced from Exceed for Sakuna of Rice and Ruin, which has kind of been in this game. It's like, I feel like we've been seeing the game like every summer for the last couple of years. It's been like, they, and they still didn't announce like when it's going to release. They just announced that it will have a physical release officially through Exceed. If, so, if E3 but, had happened this year, it would have been five years in a row where Exceed had Sakuna after E3. Is it really five? I knew it was at least three. It was 2016 where they first showed it off, I think. Because it was yeah, the same. That one. I want to say it's the same year that they showed off uh, Y2, which was 2016. Because 2017 was uh, the Y1 release, I think. I don't know. In any case, it's been a while. <laughs> but it, obviously, they uh, put in put together a pretty cool like Divine collection. That's a premium edition. Some I think they I will I don't say know much that about the game except that it has like some really nice artwork, very like Muramasa, the Demon Blade type style, like painterly Eastern flavored sort of thing. I will say that the Exceed press release on this game that announced this physical edition sounds confident. Like, yes, this game will release in 2020 for real this time. I thought they didn't even specify the year. No, they say 2020, but they say this year. In the most recent update for it, I mean, they've said 2019 in the past and so on, but still. Okay. Well, that's your kind of the uh, that weird genre split between RPG and farming sim that has been more and more prevalent. We, we kind of saw that with uh, 
Summer and Mara. Uh, and Rune Factory. Covered, yeah, Rune Factory, Story of Seasons. So some of those more RPG-leaning than others, but it seems like something that we've kind of grandfathered into the site just because we have contributors that are willing and able to cover them. So we will see who's interested in looking at Sakana Rice and Ruin of Rice and Ruin whenever we see it. And that's all that I had listed as RPG site topics for the week. Is there anything else from like the general gaming or something that I missed that anyone else saw this week? Um, I'm trying to well, think. Well, tomorrow is the Ubisoft um, future whatever stream. And it seems like poor Far Cry 6 has been leaked all over the place now. That's supposed to be an announcement. Assassin's but... Creed also had a big gameplay leak. But yeah, that too. That's Ubisoft like, like tradition. Uh, gameplay leaks. Name a more iconic duo. And then Ubisoft's also, I feel like we're obligated to bring this up. Their upper management is like in the middle of this very soupy investigation. Oh, totally. Um, I tweeted about it yesterday, and there's essentially this article from a big uh, French uh, news outlet that just went live in the last couple of days that really is like an expose of the upper management and just how much they knew and how much they very clearly didn't care about the sexual assault that was going on in the company. And it's quite frankly disgusting. Some of the things that the that the uh, article goes over and there's like English like translations of it. Cause it's, it's in French and there's like, there's a uh, like kind of like bullet points for what the article goes over out there on Twitter. If you still care to look for it, it's to be blunt. And this isn't even like exaggerating. If everything that that article says is true, like a, most of Ubisoft's upper management should probably be in jail. It's bad. Like, it's not pretty. Just, just as we are with uh, Harry Potter, I think our website's still going to cover it, but we're, we're not going to shy away from mentioning these things as relevant things because games aren't developed out of thin air. They're developed by people, and sometimes those people aren't the most... You know, you, those are who you're supporting when you're supporting yeah, games I'll, made by them. Honestly, so. all that needs to be said is like video games are developed by people, and people can be good, but people can also be real assholes. Real, yeah, not pieces. not good. They they can be good or they can be not good. But we yeah. will see uh, any Assassin's Creed or uh, related information from that Ubisoft Forward event. So you'll still see that from us. We almost forgot there was another big RPG that was announced this year, uh, this week, that was hyped up by Nintendo themselves. Bakugan oh. Champions of Vest, uh, Vestrola, or Vestroya. <laughs> That's was an that RPG. That? I saw <laughs> information on that. Was that the game that ended up being announced where they mentioned it was a third party? Yeah. Okay, so here's how it, if you weren't paying attention, because it, it was kind of a flash in the pan. So, uh, Nintendo announced that they are doing a Paper Mario Treehouse Live stream out of nowhere. You know, they kind of do this for E3, but obviously there is no E3 this year. So, so it's like, okay, we're going to basically have our Treehouse team do Paper Mario. Like, okay, that makes sense. That game's coming out. But also, kind of connected to this, WayForward Games, the developers of Shantae and a bunch of other like side-scroller type games, is also going to be announcing a new a franchise that is new to them. 
And a lot of people assume that this was going to be a Nintendo franchise because it's a Nintendo Treehouse Live joined with a Paper Mario stream. So it's like, okay. What? And I don't, I, don't think that, I don't think that was much of a stretch to assume that it was going to be a Nintendo franchise considering it was kind of announced in the same breath as a Paper Mario stream on a Nintendo Treehouse Live. But then they quickly clarified this via a tweet that the franchise that WayForward is working on isn't Nintendo. It's third party. And then the next day, it, it was a Bakugan, like kind of a, you know, monster raising RPG sort of game. Uh, what I'm sure everyone was hoping for. Yeah. It just, I, I do think it is weird that a licensed anime, children's anime, Warner Brothers published game was shown alongside Paper Mario, like demo in a Nintendo Treehouse stream. It just, it's like a weird place for it to show up and be teased and revealed like it just no one expected it because it is very weird but that's what they did for a younger i wonder if do you think this would have gotten more exposure if it was just announced through like a press release embargo to websites well obviously it would have been it wouldn't have gotten nearly as much attention if that's what happened but is but, it a good sort of attention? I guess maybe there's no such thing as bad attention. Maybe. <laughs> I feel like almost all of the attention is simply on the fact that it was originally announced by Nintendo. Then it had to be clarified, oh, it's not a Nintendo franchise. And then it turning out to not even be like a, an actually like new IP from way forward, but rather a licensed game. It's like, well, that happened. And well, so I think now, the so fact that people... it was a treehouse stream and not even just like a... Like, if Bakugan appeared in, an, in a Nintendo Direct, that would have been fine. You know, like, WayForward is making this game. You know, that's like, oh, okay, that's expected. We see these sorts of things in Nintendo Direct. But the fact that it was kind of like in this Nintendo treehouse thing is, is just so weird to me. Well, now it's and almost I... framed as like, we have this game instead of... I, I don't think that's or fair. WarioWare or whatever. I mean, WayForward has obviously done like uh, licensed games before, and from my understanding, they've made some actually pretty decent ones. Like I remember reading back in the day, like a Nintendo Life review or something for a uh, Hotel Transylvania um, game by WayForward that was very much a Symphony of the Night ripoff, but actually pretty decent in its own right. So, like, who knows? Maybe this will actually be a decent RPG, even if it's, like, a licensed Bakugan game, which, God, I haven't heard of Bakugan since middle school. I feel like Bakugan is, like, one of those, like, Fox Saturday morning shows, or maybe it was WB. I don't know. Like, it's one of those shows. I was too old at the time when I first came around, but I had younger brothers that were watching stuff like that. <laughs> I haven't heard about it forever. And I heard Adam describe it as like C tier Yu Gi Oh! <laughs> like, oh, now I know what it is. I, I can envision what that is in my head. Yeah, the whole thing with it was is that you had the cards that you would set down, but the real thing was with the cards was simply to be magnets so that when you kind of roll this like marble shaped, um, well, large marble shaped plastic ball figure, when it rolls onto the magnet, it kind of flushes out into a figure of a monster. And uh, I remember that it didn't really take off too much back when I was in middle school because, well, 
if kids wanted to get into card games, the parents would obviously want to steer them towards ones that didn't cost as much as Bakugan because Bakugan had the magnetic cards and also like the actual figures. So in order to have like a full team, it would be way more expensive than if they were just into like Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon or even Magic for that matter. Actually kind of a good point. Like just the design of their their in-game card game makes it so that their real world card game ends up being a higher barrier of entry. So it never took off in that sense. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we're going to cover this too thoroughly, but uh, there it is. Honestly, I just mentioned it half as a joke. <laughs> yeah, uh, but sure yeah. Some... there's there's some Bakugan diehard listening to us right now. And that, I think, covers us for this week. So again, uh, thank you for joining us. We have the that video feature that we talked about earlier, Valky Profile, up on the YouTube channel, along with that Persona 4 gameplay from a couple of weeks back for the PC version, which, by the way, they recently announced sold 500,000 copies. So well, technically they announced that they had 500,000 players, so we don't know if that's actual copies sold or just how many people played the game on Steam. It's that's confusing. True. The wording makes it a bit weirder. It's probably just 500,000 sold, but like everyone, like, like all of the estimates like that people had for a copy sold would seem to have it pegged at least 700,000. So who knows uh, it generally the way that estimates work now on PC, at least for the lower bound of sales, we, you tend to have a decent enough idea. So I don't know. But in any so, case, it seems very successful. And of course now start, start, start your, uh, your port bag wish list for your favorite Atlas game on PC. Um, I'd like to play Digital Devil Saga someday without pulling out a PS2 or an an emulator. And it's P5R on PC. Yeah. Um, And then uh, we have the feature for the Final Fantasy IX retrospective. We have the uh, feature, the review for Story of Seasons, Friends in Mineral Town. We got all the news things that we covered this week. You can find us on our webpage at RPG Site Net. You can find us on Twitter Twitter handle at RPG Site. Uh, You can find us on Facebook rpg site net and you can join us in the discord channel uh from the link on the top banner on our homepage. we've got people that are talking still about final fantasy 7 remake pretty active monster hunter chat talking about the new updates there and then of course just general rpg or whatever else you want to talk about talk about prey or doom if you'd like we're not going to kick you out uh and then we will try to put up a new video feature for this record of lotus war uh castlevania game that we talked about so until then We'll see you next time. Take care.